You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me. That's why I use High Sierra showerheads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads, 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to talk for this episode about the intersection of faith and conservation. Very excited to be joined by two guests. We have Helen Rose Patterson. She is Senior Outreach Coordinator for the Golf Program at the National Wildlife Federation. Helen Rose, thanks for coming on. So happy to be here. And also joined by Corey Sparks. He is assistant pastor at Bethany United Methodist Church in New Orleans. Corey, so glad you could come on as well. Thank you. Uh, very excited to talk to you both about this topic. Uh, like I mentioned beforehand, I've worked in water and the environment for a long time. I also majored in philosophy and religion in college, so I'm very interested in talking about the intersection of these two. Uh, Corey, I'd like to start with you to hear a little bit about the presence and the and the role that faith plays in the New Orleans community and Southern Louisiana. I think it has a a big part uh, in the fabric of life there. That's right. Faith is central to our culture. Uh, all the data shows that Louisianans attend church more often than the average American. But even if they don't go to church. The atheist would never dream of eating meat on a Lenten Friday. It's got to be a fish fry. So it's a cultural piece as well that permeates uh, every part of our life. Yeah. Um, and, and how long have you been uh, a pastor and, and in a kind of a faith leader type role? I've been a pastor for over 15 years. And um, I say that I mentioned that about Catholicism. Grew up Catholic in the middle of the Bible Belt, and then came to New Orleans and became a Protestant, a Methodist. Uh, I've, I've got things clearly confused, but <laughs> in, in all cases, and, and, and Helen Rose knows that better than most. But in all cases, uh, all all of our faith traditions, we find a, a power to life in this place and staying centered in creation and caring for creation. Helen Rose, what's the what's the concept or the idea behind connecting the faith community to the conservation movement? It's, you know, to yeah. some that may seem like an unlikely intersection, an unlikely pairing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I came into this particular role, I, I, 
understood living here in New Orleans that religion is really important to people, just like Corey said, right? Like it, it's really wi- woven into the fabric of our lives. And I myself am not a religious person, but I've known all of these really wonderful religious people in my life who care a lot about environmental issues, but didn't always have the right kind of outlets to engage with that ethic. Um, and so I just really saw there's this great opportunity um, to reach out to this community that cares a lot about the future of our environment, especially here in South Louisiana, um, and to give them, you know, work with them to develop the tools and the voice and the language and the stories to talk about, in our case, coastal restoration, but environmental issues writ large in their own language uh, and to really elevate that um, And so um, I actually, when I first set out to do it, um, everyone told me I had to talk to Corey. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and so I did, he was one of the first people I started talking to five years ago when we started this work. Um, And I just think oftentimes we get into this uh, in the, in the environmental movement, we love science, right? Like we want everything to be science-based and that's really, really good, right? Like it should be science is awesome. Um, but I think sometimes us as like scientific thinkers think that I, I had a, a rabbi once be like, scientists think that we believe in like witches and magic, but like, we also believe in science too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, making the case that like people can have faith and believe in God and, and participate in a faith tradition and really care about science and truth, um, that those things are not at odds with each other. Um, I just think is a really powerful uh, way to connect and elevate these issues. Hmm. Is this idea of, of connecting faith community to conservation movement, something that uh, you may have seen happen elsewhere in the country or uh, kind of got that idea from someplace like else? I, I imagine so. Um, so I went to school in Vermont at a little bitty uh, college called Bennington, where you make up your own uh, course of study. And um, one of the things I did while I was there was look at how our religious and cultural backgrounds impact the way we think about environmental issues. So not, I I wasn't just thinking about religious backgrounds, but also just like, you know, my identity as a Southerner and what that means about how um, I think about environmental issues. Um, And so in that, in in sort of leaning into and studying that and also in studying abroad in India, um, I did come across a lot of people who viewed environmental issues through the lens of their faith, um, in particular in Vermont. And this is probably the most common um, outlet for the faith community to engage environmental issues in the U.S. is the Interfaith Power and Light Coalition. Um, and so it's definitely work that happens in other places. Um, but I don't see like the mainstream environmental organizations necessarily engaging with faith communities all that often. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I worked for a while in Chesapeake Bay restoration, and and maybe about ten years ago, there you know there was really kind of a, a an effort to try to engage with with the faith community. Um, I worked at EPA uh, in DC, and there was also a real concerted effort to try to to reach out uh, to the faith uh, based community too. I wanted to ask you both a little bit more about the connection. What's the what's the connection between faith, religion, and the environment itself? I mean, this is this can get pretty philosophical here, right? I, I'm I'm really curious as to to what that connection is for me as a Christian. And the answer from each of the world religions would be different, but for me as a Christian, I see the Creator in the creation. Uh, ancient Celts, and I hate to go there because that's something tree-hugging <laughs> Christians love to do. 
and, and I hate to be one of those guys, but they would speak of the book of creation as well as the book of scripture and the way in which the heavens tell of the glory of God. Once you recognize that, the enchanted nature of the universe, you have to respond in some way. And despite the conflicted history of the faith, the Christian faith with the environmental movement, the call is clear for many of us to care for creation as a sign of respect and reverence for our creator. Um, Helen Rose, from your perspective, um, what would you say? So part of the reason I let Corey go first is I try not to say. Um, mm. As a not religious person, I really um, I, I think it's important for people in the environmental world who want to do this work with faith communities that um, just because the, the faith language isn't the same as the language we would use to talk about why these issues are important doesn't make it any less valid and meaningful. Um, and so I really focus on making sure that faith leaders have the experiences and the, the background information yeah. they need mm. to speak about environmental issues in the language and context that makes the most sense for them. Absolutely fair enough. Makes makes sense. Well, Corey, you know, I, I think a lot about, uh, and I've had recent conversations about how when Pope Francis, you know, yeah. came into that role, he put out this giant encyclical yeah. on the environment. Um, I think really making a lot of those points that you made about this is, you know, the view of this is God's creation and that we need to be stewards of it. Um, and that was really a, a landmark uh, move from the from a pope. Absolutely. Love out to see. In fact, Helen Rose and I have led trainings on that encyclical. Oh. Um, it, it's powerful uh, theologically. Uh, so much thought went into it and also an expression of his heart. So that's a an important con- um, confluence. Hmm. And I, I think it's so interesting that the encyclical actually speaks uh, very much outside of the Catholic community along with, I mean, obviously it's hmm. to the Catholic community, but it's really to all people of faith. Um, and I've definitely seen here that that's one of the things, the touchstones that people find in, in understanding, regardless of their actual denomination or set or what church they go to. I agree. Uh, Helen Rose, when you, how do you approach the, the faith community about water environment water and environment issues. You said when you were talking to people, they all sent you toward Corey. But aside from aside from maybe just him, how do you make that entrance? How, what's your opening conversation? How do you try to engage um, these folks? Yeah, um, it's a very open conversation. And it, it's very much about networking from person to person. You know, um, like I said, people sent me to Corey, but they also sent me to folks uh, who they knew. So almost all the faith leaders I know have some connection to each other. Um, and so um, a lot of meeting them and, and coming across uh, who to talk to came about that way. Um and I would say that I approach it with a lot of openness and honesty. I think one of the things that's very important is I'm clear that I'm not a person of faith and I'm not looking to tell them that their their faith needs to guide them to be engaged on these issues. Um, what I am saying is that we all recognize that coastal restoration, climate change, and water issues are an existential threat to our community. Um, and that I personally believe that faith leaders and faith communities have a really unique uh, and powerful opportunity to affect change um, as we work on tackling those um, issues. And then, you know, we lay out the stuff and then I'm really always focused on creating space for 
the really real conversations to happen. So, um, for example, we really, we do a lot of field trips. We love getting people out on boats to see the coast, to see the water, to understand what's going on. Um, and in those spaces, we just, if I, if I can manage to sort of point out the landscape features and the things that we need to understand are happening. So like here we're losing land and here we're gaining land. And this is how fresh water is interacting with salt water and then leave space. Um, Faith leaders often have the most interesting conversations themselves. So I remember we were, I was out on a boat with a couple of Episcopal priests and a rabbi. Um, and we had this conversation or they had a conversation about um, their role as the leaders in their communities and what it really meant to be pastoral, taking care of their congregation um, and, and providing those sort of comfort things that people look for in that community and their role in being prophetic and, and challenging their communities to um, engage with these tough topics. And that it was sometimes a hard balance to strike. And so that's a conversation that I never would have been party to if we'd been sitting in someone's office. Mm. Um, but that I got to hear and learn something that let me better understand how to bring information to the faith community. And, and Corey, from your perspective, you know, when Helen Rose first approached you, you know, about this type of work, or maybe when you've heard from others in the conservation or environment community, how, how do they, how do they come to you? And, and when you first started getting approached this way, what's your, what's your reaction and thought process? Well, as Helen Rose knows, one of the things I always say is there are people of faith in your midst already. Mm. You, you don't know it. Uh, <laughs> you, you may call them uh, anglers. You know, you may call them sportsmen, but uh, our charter boat operators, but uh, they're already in your midst. And uh, that's been central to my outreach to the faith community is to articulate that in terms of coastal restoration, it's an existential crisis. It's negligence on a cosmic level to lose 1900 square miles of your state mm-hmm. since 1932. I mean, that's. That's way worse than losing your keys, right, Travis? That's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we can we can acknowledge it's bad, and we can acknowledge it's not just one more thing. And a, a final piece is that I point out that the first public hearings on coastal land laws in Louisiana were held in churches by faith communities, by the Catholic Church and the Methodist Church and others coming together to say, we must take a stand or we risk destruction. And that story, stretching from the 1980s to today, is the faith community story as well as the environmental movement story. And of course, there were major national environmental organizations on the ground from the beginning of the coalition to restore coastal Louisiana. But it's important to keep that in mind, that this is the story of the faith community as we seek to care for creation. Helen Rose, you mentioned, you know, taking faith leaders out on, on boat tours. I'd love to hear just mm-hmm. a little bit more about the types of activities you, you engage them in, you know, um, some, some examples or some stories and, and even their reaction when they see, actually see firsthand some of these uh, situations and challenges. Yeah, so I can think of a, a 
sort of three three good uh, things. We also do a lot of flyovers along with boat tours because mm-hmm. you know seeing all that land loss, uh, you can't see it from the ground. It's very flat here. <laughs> so you got to get up above it. Um, and so that's always a really powerful experience for our, our faith leaders. Um, uh, Fred Duvall, who's an Episcopal minister here, um, wrote a really lovely uh, blog for us. And I think the title was something along the lines of losing ground and gaining perspective um, that was about going on a flyover. Um, and I just think that, you know, like Fred's someone who hunts and fishes. He He's out on the landscape and he really understands um, at that level what it looks like. Um, but, but seeing it from above was really powerful. The other primary field trip we like to do is out to the Carnarvon freshwater diversion, which is, um, just Southeast of new Orleans. Um, and it's a great opportunity to see a spot where the river is successfully building land. So, um, it's a structure that allows water to flow from the river into the adjacent wetlands. Uh, and it wasn't designed to build land, but it is. Um, and I've been going out there for years, um, and Corey's been out there and it's just um, that one in particular, I think faith leaders and Corey can probably speak to this a little more. There's this idea of um, being in sort of co-creation, right. As we're building land um, it's emerging from the water and these new trees are coming up and, and it's because of a human intervention. And I think seeing those things also makes the future of being able to do coastal restoration feel a little more possible. Um, we also do trainings. Corey and I have offered a couple of different trainings over the years. Um, people often want uh, just some like know-how on advocacy skills, right? Like how do you write a letter to the other? How do you meet with your legislators? And then to that end, we do um, ask our faith leaders to do in-district meetings. Corey has done several of those of bunch of other people have. Um, and we typically have a coastal day at the legislature once a year. We haven't, we didn't get to do it last year because of COVID. We may be able to do it this year. Um, but that's always a good opportunity. We bring the faith leaders out, talk to their legislators. Um, they're at coastal day, which is a really great, um, opportunity Mm. to share those experiences. Sure. Corey, I'd love to hear your thoughts when you've been on these trips out there, um, you know, by boat, by, by air, whatever it might be. Um, what what have you seen, and and how does it resonate with you? Carnarvon, and I, by the way, have not been given an opportunity to do a flyover, but I'm not bitter, Travis. <laughs> I, 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 I feel, just put that out there. We'll get you up anytime you want. I just want to make that clear. That's very yeah. clear. So, no, the, the power of being there at Carnarvon, um, to see the way in which a diversion was intended to address salinity, hmm. Built land, nonetheless, does, as, as Helen Rose says, it, it points out the way in which we can address this coastal crisis. Because in large part, it was caused by us. In 1927, mm-hmm. we had a horrific flood, including an area right by Carnarvon. And we decided we were going to control the Mississippi River. Well, guess how that worked out, right? <laughs> we sent silt off the edge of the continental shelf. And we have caused consequences ever since. That's why we're losing this land. But there is hope. And uh, Carnarvon's a great place to see it and not a big place. And uh, although it's not as cool as doing a flyover, it's pretty cool to be out on an airboat. I mean, that's better than a lot of Fridays for me, Travis. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm curious just how you kind of carry these experiences over to members of, you know, the, your congregation, um, how you take what you've seen, what you've learned, 
and weave it into, you know, being a pastor and the words that you share with, with folks. And yeah. Uh, how do I share it with uh, hunters and fishers, uh, with charter boat operators? I've had folks in my congregations who own charter boat operations. Uh, that's, that's one piece where I tap into my training and my work in spiritual formation to say, how is it that your faith affects not just Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday as well. And that's one piece where I put a great deal of energy. Um, and then also for the congregation as a whole, uh, Earth Day, Sunday, hmm. Feast of St. Francis commemorated in uh, a Methodist church, not uh, on actual feast day, but on the Sunday closest. Um, those sorts of congregation-wide activities and then the field trips, uh, certainly not a flyover, and not even the Carnarvon diversion, but to take congregations out, youth groups and, and mm. uh, other interested folks out to the Overlook for Bayou Bienvenue in the Lower Ninth Ward, which many of your listeners will know from the horrific effects mm. during Hurricane Katrina, to see the connection to the land to the wetlands to be able to experience it in that fashion. Uh, I, I see those opportunities as key and have been able to integrate creation care into retreats. Uh, when we've taken time out as a congregation to spend uh, a couple of days of quiet and reflection uh, and in uh, Bible studies uh, to do Bible studies on creation and uh, you can take it from Genesis to Revelation, that's from the beginning to the end, and show that piece. Hmm. Yeah, incredible. I love that phrase, creation care. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I named my first son Noah um, just because oh. I was really, I'm obviously a big <laughs> admirer of, of, you know, that, that role in taking the animals and preserving them. That's uh, so I, I guess I've got that con little connection there too. And I, it was chosen Absolutely. not because, not just because I like the name, but for that specific reason. Um, yeah. I, I guess Helen Rose, I wanted to ask lastly yeah. about impact. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you met, you mentioned these, these faith leaders are out talking to their, their congregations and communities. They're going to the legislature, they're writing op-eds. Um, what, what impact do you think that that has had? I think it's huge. Um, I, so we're right now, we're in the middle of uh, this incredibly technical wonky comment period on the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion, which is <laughs> a keystone coastal restoration project. And Corey and I were both on a public, a sort of disastrous public meeting last week. Um, but <laughs> Corey was giving comments. But um, the faith leaders... You know, I work with a bunch of other outreach folks who do work with different constituencies. I think you're talking to my colleague, Sam, who works with chefs. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, everyone works with sort of different groups of people, some are landowners, just residents of certain areas, that kind of thing. Um, I think that the faith leaders show up in the biggest numbers most consistently when we, when we ask them to do something, even when it's this incredibly technical, wonky, like literally the document that we're commenting on is almost 6,000 pages long. And so they have to really trust that what I'm telling them about this document and that what we're hearing from the scientists and folks who are reading it is correct. And that 
it's worth them taking the time to do it. Um, and I think the impact is huge. I think faith leaders, um, you know, they have the benefit of uh, that moral authority that lets them speak outside of their own voting district, right? Like we can put them in front of any decision maker and it matters. Um, it's always great when there's a public meeting and there are a couple folks with their collars on in the, in the, in the audience or getting up to, um, to make comments. And um, it's also great for me when the faith leaders just get that and show up on their own. Like I, Ellen Blue, who wrote a really wonderful book called In Case of Katrina and really also understands these water issues in a, a profound and beautiful way. Um, she showed up the first time I asked her to come to a public meeting. Uh, just she and her husband are both Methodist mentors and they both had their collar on and they knew that that was important. Um, and so I, I think I can't underestimate the impact, right? Like mm. it's, they bring a whole new dimension and voice to this work and a perspective that we sometimes lack um, and a humanity um, that we sometimes lose in, in the technicalities and the science. Um, and so I sort of can't say enough good things about the, the impact that they have in advancing coastal restoration. Hmm. Well, uh, this uh, conversation has been impactful on me. I really appreciate the perspective from both of you and uh, sharing about these experiences and, and the approach. Um, yeah, terrific stuff. So thank you so much uh, for, for your time. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. So thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Spring Point Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.